God, it's good to have our brother Greg with us again. We missed him. It's been a few months, I think, unless I was away when he was last here. <laughs> uh, and we just pray that your spirit um, would allow him to communicate clearly and powerfully your word to us from First Peter. Amen. It's always good to be here um, and good to see very familiar faces. It's a story that happens all the time. I suspect you know at least one or two people to whom this has happened. It's a couple that's wanted to have children, has prayed, has done the studies, has worked at it, and nothing's happened, so they decide to adopt. And as soon as that new adopted baby enters the home, somehow and in some way, within nine months another child appears, this one biologically. It's happened to at least four or five of my friends over the course of the last 10 years. And for a while, I thought I could make a lot of money renting out my own daughter <laughs> to couples as an adopted child for just you know a weekend, maybe. <laughs> an evening or two of free time that I could enjoy, that they could profit from. But it would seem to kickstart the entire process of having your own biological children. This happened to friends of mine named Bob and May. They had been thinking about having children for a while. They had really prayed and wrestled through whether um, they felt called to have children, um, how would it impact their sense of what God was leading them to. And over the course of about a year, year and a half, they began to pursue the idea of adoption. Well, one thing happened to another, and all of a sudden, two young girls in Korea were offered to them. Um, they had been abandoned by their mother. Their father felt unable to care for them, had given them to an orphanage. And the director of the orphanage knew Bob and May and said, we can make this fast. They need a good home. You'd be good parents. One month before going to Korea to pick up these two daughters, Bob and May discovered they were pregnant. And so from no children at all till three in a period of six months. Now, imagine what would happen to these adopted children if they suddenly realized as they were coming home, with their adopted parents that another child was about to be born. How would it affect their sense of self, their sense of chosenness, their sense of security? The tragedy, of course, would be, wouldn't it, that they would move from a, a place of excitement and hope and anticipation at what their parents calling them from a foreign country might do in them and through them and with them, to a place of thinking, well, but if a real child is here, I'm not as special. Maybe I was just an accident. Maybe really they've just adopted us so that we could provide childcare for this younger baby. To provide a little house cleaning help on the side. To work and to fetch and do all those things that they might have to hire somebody for, but it would just be easier to adopt somebody and bring them to the United States for. It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? It would fundamentally undercut everything that's beautiful, that's special, that's life-changing about adoption and would demean it in a powerful way. I think that's what Peter is getting at in the passage that we read. I know um, over the last week or so, Dick has actually taken that image and metaphor of adoption and helped you think about what would it mean to live with the sense of anticipation, of hopefulness of what your adoptive parent in heaven wants to accomplish in you, through you, and by means of you, and how it began to change your perspective. Well, Peter picks up that image and continues with it in the section that we're looking at. So he starts out with say, saying, therefore, rid yourselves, or you've already ridden yourselves 
of all malice and of deceit, of hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Because as soon as you became a Christian, he's arguing, you let go of those things. You renounced in the, way, um, in the language of conversion um, and initial baptism, I think, in the Anglican church. Um, you've renounced the ways of Satan. You've turned to God. So you've done all these things. And then Peter says, so I want you to long for, to crave pure spiritual milk, just like an infant craves milk. It's all it knows. It's all it wants. It satisfies like almost nothing else could. Long for it because you've tasted how wonderful God is. So innately in who you are, your heart begins to long and cry out for the one thing that satisfies you, that nourishes you, that gives you life. First is the taste of how good the Lord is, and then comes the craving. Has that ever happened to you with food? Where you've just tasted something for the very first time, and all of a sudden you've just realized, I'm going to want to continue to eat this for the rest of my life. <laughs> Maybe continually for the rest of my life. I, that, happens to, that happened to me when I was in Thailand. Um, I was uh, visiting a Buddhist temple, just to um, look at it. And we, I was walking out, waiting for the tour bus to come back when... I saw a man sitting in the dirt road, and he had a pile of fruit. Now, I like food. I, I'm Chinese-American. While I'm eating a great meal, I remember meals that I've had in the past and discuss it with my friends. And if I'm traveling or at a conference, while we're eating a great meal, thinking about great meals of the past, we're asking when the next meal is that's planned on the schedule, where will we eat? So I'm a food person, so I thought, he has a big pile of food. I have 10 minutes. What? I should go and look. <laughs> And it was these little brown, reddish-brown fruits, and I didn't know what they were. And I also don't speak Thai. He spoke no English, and so I kind of smiled and looked, you know, just observing. And he kept pointing, and I was like, you know, I don't know what to do. Finally, he broke one open. Well, then, right, my Chinese-American shame orientation and duty orientation kicked in, so I felt like I had to buy it, which I'm sure played right into his hands. So he piled up a little pile of fruit for me, handed it to me, and unfortunately, I don't understand Thai, so I do what I always did in Thailand. I pulled out a wad of bot and just spread it out in front of him and invited him to take whatever he wanted. <laughs> this sounds both really generous and um, poor stewardship, but really when a dollar was trading for every 42 bot, I figured even with a few hundred bot in my hands, it cost me very little. And so I went back to my room and I had to try to figure out how to eat it because I didn't really know. But I peeled open this leathery skin, and inside were these um, almost orange-like little white sectional pieces of fruit. It was a mangosteen, and I'd never tried it before. But I popped one in my mouth, and I thought, I have to find more of these. I finished the entire bag. That night after dinner, I hiked over to the nearest night market and just wandered from stall to stall trying to find these same fruit. And I didn't find them, but I thought of them. And I think of them still, obviously. But there's that taste that creates that craving for something that nourishes, that delights, that satisfies. And Peter says, look, you've experienced, you've tasted the goodness of the Lord. It's what we were experiencing today as we were being led in prayer. And you create this craving for even more, Peter says. So like newborn babies crave this pure spiritual milk so that as you continue to nourish yourself, as you delight in it, you may grow up in your salvation that you'll begin to be developed in all of who you are and who you could be. How good the Lord is, Peter goes on to say, that he's built us into this new temple, this new building, um, where we offer sacrifices to the Lord of praise and of thanksgiving, because we are his chosen people, 
a holy nation before him. And between these two metaphors that he's using of a holy nation and people toward the end of the passage and a new temple at the beginning, right in the middle he talks about how we respond to Jesus. Because at the center of who we become and who we are becoming is who we believe Jesus to be. So, beginning in verse 4, he talks about you are being built in this new temple of God. It's an astounding privilege that Peter implicitly describes, because if you listen to his language, notice the equivalence that he's making. As you came to him, as you were coming to know this Jesus, this living stone who was rejected by men but chosen by God, but precious to God, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Did you notice that equivalence that Peter made at the beginning of that section of the text? As you come to him, this living stone, you are being built up as living stones as well. It's the astounding privilege of being a Christian that Peter is describing to us. He applies a truth about who Jesus is, the living stone. And then he says, this applies to you. You too are living stones because of what you have become in Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is the living stone and you have found yourself in him through baptism and conversion, if you are in Christ, you too have become living stones and you are part of the edifice that God is building to his glory, to his worship, and to his praise. He's making a fundamental assertion about our identity. That what is true about Jesus is now true about us if we live within Jesus. Just as Jesus is seen before the Father, blameless and sinless, so because we are in Jesus, the same is true in us. Just as the Father looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved, my son, in whom I am well pleased, the Father looks at us and says, you are my children, my sons and my daughters, my beloved in you I am well pleased. Just as the Father looks at Jesus and delivers unto him all of creation and puts it under Jesus' feet and lordship, God invites us into partnership with him to declare his glory and his reign and rule wherever we go. What is true about Jesus suddenly becomes true about us as the people of God because we are in Jesus. And like living stones, we are being built up into this new edifice, this place where God is worshipped and God is encountered, that equivalent should just leave us breathless. It's what we sing about so often in worship, particularly in those old great hymns, isn't it? God doesn't see us, he sees his son, and he welcomes us in that way. What I particularly appreciate about the way Peter describes this is that it's not a command it's a statement, it's a description rather than an imperative. It's not, you also, like living stones, build yourselves up into this thing, but you are being built. For those of you who might have been English majors at some time in the past or remember anything about eighth grade English, which is where I learned the distinction, no, it was sophomore year high school English with the worst test I've ever taken. The teacher was trying to teach us the difference between active and passive voice. Perhaps this will ring bells of joy for some of you who love this sort of thing, or just terrible fear as you think about grammar again for the first time in perhaps decades. Um, active voice has a clear subject verb object, right? Um, God builds you up. 
The passive voice, though, you lose the subject, and you were, something is being done to you. Right? It, it's, less, it's not active the way. The reason it was a terrible test is um, the teacher had given us 50 sentences. We had to identify active or passive voice. And I worked through the test very quickly, left the classroom, and two floors down, as, as I was headed to my locker, I realized I reversed the terminology. Every passive voice in my mind was an active voice. Every active voice was a passive voice. And I thought, I've just failed the test with zero answers right unless I got something wrong. <laughs> just to complete the story, because I know you'd all be fascinated by it, I got to the um, classroom the next day. The teacher handed back the papers. And to my surprise and delight, I'd gotten a B. Now, this confused me terribly, because I thought I was even worse than I thought. It wasn't that I just confused things. I must have had a huge number of these wrong. But I noticed line after line, with only one or two exceptions, I'd gotten everything wrong. And the teacher later pointed out to me, well, at first I was disturbed because I think of you as a reasonably good student. But when you were so consistently wrong, <laughs> I realized that you knew what you were doing. You just had gotten them mixed up. But I didn't feel I could give you an A, even though you had gotten them almost all of them right, because you were so profoundly wrong at some other level. So I gave you a B and thought that was the best solution possible. I willingly took it, because I love grace. <laughs> and that's precisely what Peter's getting at here. It's not about how you build yourself up. It's what's being done to you and in you and through you. It's what God has already done and is continuing to do in you. You are being built up. You are not building yourselves up. And I think that's good news for us, because it reminds us of the primacy of grace and transformation. There's a danger for us, I think, particularly those of us those of us in churches that are um, evangelical, that we preach salvation by grace, but we assume that you should just try a little harder. Right? Isn't that the message that so often we end up saying to ourselves? You're saved by grace, you need to do nothing else, but if you could just try a little harder to be nice to one another. You're saved by grace, you need to do nothing else, but if you could just be a little bit more devoted and dedicated, it would go a long way. <laughs> Jesus has done it all, but could you just kick it up a little bit? And Peter says, no, no, no. This is being done by God in you and through you. And as you were being, yes, absolutely, thank you, Lord. As you were being built up into this, suddenly God's grace and power are made manifest in the very ways that you live, in who you have become. I used to lead um, mission projects overseas during my summers. This was before I got married and had children, so I had free time. God could send me overseas. I could send the students back from overseas, and then I could vacation in an exotic, in an exotic place for an, a week or two afterwards, having already arrived. One of the, for three years, I led global projects uh, to China where we would be roomed with Chinese students, um, where we would teach American culture and English language. They would teach us about Chinese culture and language. And in our conversations, the goal was how do we share the gospel appropriately? Because InterVarsity goes into China above board. The government knows that we are InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. That's how the contracts are written. We're referred to as the InterVarsity students, so we don't hide the fact that we're Christians. We actually ask permission of the university if we can hold a worship service for the American students that we've brought on Sundays. We do this in part because we think it's better protection for the Chinese students who are participating. There's no fear that they will get caught up in something illicit or covert. The government and the university knows what's happening. We do it in part because we want the government to know that we're coming in ethically. We also want to do it because in the event something changes 
and the government becomes more open, we can say, we've been here for decades. You've known about us all along. One of the advantages of going, obviously, is that everyone knows we're Christians. One of the disadvantages is you have to honor the law if you're going to go in that way. And so we've asked the American students to honor the Chinese law, which requires that you not initiate conversations about faith. What I've pointed out to the American students, though, is that if I can bring 30 American Christians into a foreign country that doesn't know Jesus, if the way you live is not so distinctively different from everyone else here that they aren't forced to ask questions about it, there's something worthless about the faith that you have. So we go about our project. I could describe it to you in more detail, but I'm burning time. It was week three of the project. The American students had hit the cranky American missionary period where their good spirits, their desire to serve have, has encountered the terrible reality of living in a foreign country and eating food they don't enjoy, living in a schedule they haven't controlled with people that they aren't particularly um, appreciating right now. I, of course, was eat, loving the food. It was like going to visit my in-laws <laughs> or my own family. So I was trying to make conversation with the Chinese students while the American students were all withdrawn and sulking. And so I said, so Beverly, what have you noticed so far about this project? I'm secretly hoping that what she'll say is, I love how the American students serve one another, how they care deeply for people, how they love generously, even though I knew this wasn't happening. And she confirmed my worst fears when she said, well, one of the things I've noticed about the InterVarsity students is how much they fight with one another. Oh. <laughs> right? This is exactly what you're hoping not to hear. Yes, that's what American Christians do. You understand us well. <laughs> but thanks be to God, she went on. She said, you know, I notice you fight a lot, but I'm very struck by how hard you all work to forgive one another and to reconcile one another. Why is that? And it was like a super slow-mo softball pitch, right, with a giant Nerf ball being handed to you. Why are the Christians concerned about forgiveness and reconciliation, you ask? Ha, 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 you know. Because what she said is, you know, here in China, we don't care about these things. If I don't like you, I just move on. There are 1.2 billion other people I can go talk to. The American students weren't trying to do anything. They were merely being what the community of God is, which is a somewhat factious, argumentative, irritated type, but one which, as difficult as they find life together to be, presses toward reconciliation and forgiveness because the only reason we have gathered together is that we have been reconciled, redeemed, and forgiven by Jesus. And as we live out who we are, the world begins to see and to know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why Peter, I think, getting caught up in his own metaphor, which is very biblical, right? He starts with the metaphor, you're being built up into this temple, this building, and you're the priest inside, worshiping in it as well. Um, and so you were this holy priesthood, uh, you living stones. <laughs> this is where English majors, having been very pleased by the passive voice, are now very confused. <laughs> Don't be caught up in it. He says, our task is now as a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Our sacrifice is both worship and witness, which is acceptable to God through Jesus. It's the thanksgiving and fellowship offerings, not the atonement offerings that were being given in the Old Testament. And when we offer these spiritual sacrifices, there are four other times in the New Testament that that language of spiritual sacrifice gets used. It's offering our whole bodies to God so that nothing is held back in Romans 12.1. It's financially giving to advance the cause of the gospel, which uh, Peter, sorry, Paul describes in Philippians 4.18 as he thanks 
the Philippians for their gifts. Because, you know, as a missionary, we all think of Philippians as basically a very long prayer letter where he's thanking them for their gifts but also offering a little advice as he goes. It's the musical worship that we offer in Hebrews 13, 15, and also doing good deeds in Hebrews 13, 16. And we're being built up that God is doing this in us to declare his glory. And then Peter realizes that if you're going to build a building, you need a solid cornerstone, a solid foundation on which to build. And so he takes that image of Jesus being the living stone. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone on which we are being built. He weaves together two stone metaphors that occur in the Old Testament that in the end, Jesus either builds people up or he trips people up. And the distinction is our response to him. For those of us who believe Peter says in verse 6, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's our model. We know we are being built rightly. Cornerstones, in ancient times, less so now, um, needed to be perfectly square because you would use the cornerstone to determine that you were building the building on a good right angle and all the other walls um, moving in either direction needed to be square so that if the cornerstone were slightly wider than 90 degrees, eventually at some point the walls would never meet. At the other end, it was very important to have a solid cornerstone that wouldn't shift, a well-designed cornerstone so that it was accurate. (coughs) But the rest of the building is built and determined by the angles and the shape of the cornerstone itself. That in the long run, we believe the church is designed, built according to and developed along the lines that Jesus himself has laid. And when the church fails to be that, things go horribly awry. The walls don't hold together, and our witness fades. I I always think of what Mahatma Gandhi said as he was living in South Africa before he returned to India to lead um, essentially a pretty peaceful revolution in that country. He said he'd studied the New Testament deeply, Much of his political philosophy was based on the Sermon on the Mount. And when people asked him, why have you not become a Christian given that your entire life philosophy is based on the teachings of Jesus? He said, I find Jesus beautiful, Christians deplorable. If Christians looked more like Jesus, I would have become a Christian. But when we're built along the lines that Jesus has laid down, that Jesus models for us, the church becomes compelling. The church becomes winsome. The church becomes all that God intended us to be. And when we get it right, I think people's lives are changed. Just this past week, I received an email from my staff worker at Rutgers University in Newark. She described a student who came to faith during our weekend conference last weekend where we had over 500 staff and students gathered to be trained in discipleship, evangelism, leadership, um, and uh, spiritual disciplines. And Marie wrote about um, a student named Jessica. She said, we've been loving this woman for two years. She's come very close to calling herself a Christian several times, but the seeds that have been laid tend to get robbed in her life. But at this last conference, it seems that the seed has finally fallen on good soil. Here's how I know I was reading her Facebook page. And this is what Jessica wrote on her Facebook page. With time comes change. Less than one year ago, I was somewhere between being an atheist and an agnostic. In my world, people were in charge and in control and capable of governing themselves. Cause and effect, both good and bad, could be directly attributed to people or explained with science or credited to chance. But there was no God. 
In my room, there was no room for the supernatural. How could there have been? My mind one year ago was a rubber-made bowl of measly volume, and it contained two decades' worth of beliefs and opinions and writing. Yet, I was trying to fit God into it. I was trying to fit the creator of the universe into a brimming rubber-made bowl. Time progressed and change gradually ensued. As an atheist, I would ask how God came into existence. As an agnostic, I would ask how people could be so egotistical as to think that this supposed God would concern himself with their well-being. And now, as a Christian, I ask how I will contribute and participate in God's purposes. This may seem anticlimactic to my friends who do not believe, but truthfully, in comparing the difference in questions I've asked over this past year, I feel my meager rubber-made bowl has dramatically grown in volume. With time comes change. Today, though I am far off from being like Jesus, I am a Christian. When the lines are clear, when the shape is clearly set, the people of God begin to look like Jesus, and we declare his glory. People come to faith, and they follow the right pattern. I love that last line. Though I am far off from being like Jesus, but she's anticipating who she will become. She acknowledges, I am a Christian. And if you build along good lines and with a good plan, you won't be ashamed of who you become or what's built. The problem is, though, Jesus is not just the stone (coughs) that builds us up. He's also the stone that trips other people up, isn't he? It's the scandalousness of the particularity that Peter is pointing out, unapologetically, joyfully, and prayerfully, the church declares, we believe that in Jesus Christ alone is their salvation. In Jesus Christ alone is their forgiveness of sins. Peter seems to be pointing out everything in your faith relates to Jesus. Not what you do, or even particularly how or what you believe, but specifically to the person of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is how we're built up, but many people stumble over this terrible fact. I was talking with a student just this past Friday. I was speaking at the University of Chicago, my alma mater. And one of the student leaders came to me after the meeting and said, would you pray for me? I thought, sure, that's why I'm here. He said, I really feel like in the last few days, God has made it clear that I'm supposed to be a missionary and I don't know what to do. And she began to get teary, and she began to describe why she was afraid of this call. She said, I love um, issues of justice, of meeting people's needs, and I don't know if I want to be a missionary. And I pointed out to her, you know, missionaries do that kind of stuff as well. She said, I know, but why couldn't I just work for Oxfam or something like that as opposed to having to work for something like World Vision? And as she began to talk, she said, I don't want to be associated and affiliated with, like, the you know, institutional religion and all of that. And I was like, well unpack for me what you think missionaries do. And as we continued to talk, I realized it was less about career. She was already committed to serving the world. It was less about um, with whom she should work. And in the end, as we continued to talk, I, I realized it was all about whether she was willing to give her allegiance to Jesus. She was willing to do the things of God without identifying herself with the person of God. She wanted to be salt and light in the world, without speaking of the light of the world. And so I said, you know, it seems to me you're putting the cart before the horse far less important than what you do is whether you can give your allegiance to Jesus. 
wherever you go, you're his representative, and your very choice not to make that commitment is just a bi as binding a commitment as having said you are a follower of Jesus. What will it take for you? This student was tripping over Jesus. In a good way, I believe, she was wrestling with it. She was weeping over it. She was praying for it. But until she could embrace Jesus, he wasn't the basis on which she could build a future. He, she, he was the place where she was getting caught up. Peter said, look, you're being built into this new building, focused and founded on Jesus. And when you are, you become God's chosen people, people living for God's purposes and people living for God's glory. Who we are determines what we do. We're God's people because we have been chosen by him. And Peter begins to use a whole series of metaphors here. We are a chosen people. We are a holy nation. We are a kingdom and priests. All of this language applied in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. Now Peter appropriates and says, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male nor female, whoever you are, if you know Jesus, everything promised in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in you and through you. You are the fulfillment of these promises that God has made in the Old Testament. And you have been chosen by God himself for people who used to not be a people. You are a people now. For people who used to wander through eternity without knowing God, you now have a God. And that, sense, that deep sense of being chosen is where Peter rests at the end of this passage. We all know how important it is to be chosen, don't we? I mean, I still have terrible, terrible memories of high school and junior high and elementary school. Whenever we had gym and whenever, like, the large gorillas at class were chosen to be team captains and those of us lined up against the back wall just desperately prayed. Some of you don't relate to this at all, like the family that's offering football challenge. <laughs> but for the rest of us, Siler family, it was just terrible. You'd stand there and you'd just think, please choose me before the kid on the crutches. Just please. <laughs> It didn't always happen because the kid with the crutches was fast. <laughs> but there was something about being chosen, right? It's what makes weddings so powerful. It certainly isn't the funny-looking dresses and clothes that we make people dress up in, right? I mean, come on, like, how many of you have ever heard, oh, I chose these bridesmaid dresses so you could wear them again? Yeah. Mentally, just in case you ever go back to high school for prom, <laughs> right? It certainly isn't the stunning nature of the wedding ceremony, which, while nice, just drags on while you're in the back. You know, especially lighting the unity candle. That just takes forever with the special music. It certainly isn't because you're going to have an enjoyable time with the bride or groom because the reality is for most of us when we go to a wedding, we don't actually talk to them. I largely go to weddings now because I want to honor the bride and groom, but also because I think they have great friends and I'd like to hang out with their friends. What's special about a wedding is actually having two people look each other in the eye and say, I've chosen you. Above every other person in the world, you and you alone are the person I've chosen. And I'm giving myself to you without reserve and without regret. And to have the other person go, I accept that choice, and I'm choosing you in return. Nobody else will matter like you matter to me. I will love nobody like I love you. I will struggle with nobody like I struggle with you. But I've chosen you. It's that moment, isn't it, that causes those of us who are weepy to begin to weep? It's that moment that you think this was worth being here for because when you watch two people choose one another, you realize how special, how intimate, and how holy a moment that is. And it's that same metaphor that, P that Paul picks up on that Peter's referring to here. God says, I've chosen you. I've chosen you above everything else in this universe. You are mine, and I am yours. 
I belong to you and you belong to me. You will never be alone. You're mine. That's why he says we live for the praise of God's glory. How could you not praise God there? And from that proclamation of praise comes evangelism and witness, doesn't it? Because the only difference between worship and evangelism, between worship and witness, is who you happen to be around when you say it. Here at church, surrounded by many other Christians, we call it worship. We declare God's glory to one another. And in witness and evangelism, we just happen to do it with people who don't know quite what we're talking about yet. It's often the same words with just slightly different audiences. It's a beautiful thing that Peter is doing in this passage. He's basically saying the church is fulfilling and experiences fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel in its own existence. We have a new purpose, which is the purpose of Israel and was the purpose of Jesus Christ himself, who is the true Israel of God, the one who finally does everything that God was hoping for. It is to pick up the language of adoption that I started with and that Dick referred to last week. The beautiful thing about adoption is that the adoptee does nothing except accept the choice. I have a fr another friend who also adopted a child and then immediately had, got pregnant within a year. And what Ken says is, is this, my adopted child lives it with greater security than my biological child ever will. Because as far as my biological daughter knows, she's an accident. My adopted child knows that's not the case. I worked, I struggled, I prayed, and I labored to bring this child into my family. That child knows from the moment they come into my home, they were chosen. They were taken into this family. All they have to do is to receive it. My adopted child lives with greater security, with greater hope and greater delight than a biological child ever might. Then he said, of course, I'll work on that with my biological child. I want them to have security, too. The beautiful thing about what Peter seems to be saying is it's not what we do. It's who we are by nature of the choice that's been made for us by God. So you are being built up, not building yourselves up. You are receiving and understanding who Jesus Christ is through grace. And God's chosen you. You've become the people that he's long desired you to be. And then like good adopted children, we can either live in doubt of that or press deeply into it. Live out the reality, I was not brought in this family to clean, to provide child care, or as an afterthought. I was chosen, I'm loved, and I belong. And when adopted children shine with that kind of confidence and light, their faces are transformed, the family is renewed. And I think all of us stand in awe at the beauty and wonder and grace of what adoption really is, both physically and spiritually. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters here. Um, I often feel like an adopted child in their congregation. Um, I'm grateful for their friendship. I'm grateful for their hope. I'm grateful for their love. And I'm grateful that they extend this invitation, both near and far, throughout northern Westchester. May we press deeply into the reality. You've chosen us and you know us. You loved us and you call us. May we be built up into the very place where your glory is manifested and demonstrated, where your praise is declared. And may you keep us centered on the person of Jesus. We give you thanks, O oh Lord. Amen. <clears throat>